standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Once again, David Bietney is taking a hiatus from the show. And uh, frankly speaking, that's such a complicated word. It was hard enough for me to say it. Now, of course, people say I don't talk enough on the show. But here I am. Our special guest host this week is Christopher O'Brien. And we'll be introducing our other guest shortly. Now, one thing, of course, is people have asked me, since David is not here, what about the weird voices? Who's going to do the weird voices? Chris, you have an idea? Yay! Hey, it'd be the trickster here, it'd be. Okay, well, I think... <laughs> I just, I couldn't help myself. You know what? I got a suggestion for you, Chris, okay? Okay. Don't give up your day job. Okay. Do you have a day job? Do any of us have a day job? Several. We all kind of have day jobs. So before we get on to the subject of our discussion, Chris, whatever attracted you? to doing this sort of thing instead of a regular job? Oh, boy, that's a loaded question, Gene. Uh, who? Uh, I gave a New Year's Eve party uh, December 31st, 1992, and quite a number of people at the party were talking uh, in separate groups about a UFO sighting that occurred the previous November, and somebody chimed in that that was the same night that a cattle mutilation had been reported two counties south of me, and uh, I've, been, uh, I've been chasing the phenomenon ever since. I, that I can really literally look back at that night and see when it started for me I've, I've, of course I've known about cattle mutilations for many years I did follow newspaper reports back in the uh, 70s and um, was aware of the Snippy the Horse case which was the seminal first publicized case back in 67 as a 10 year old kid I remember hearing about the Snippy case so I've always had a, an interest in the subject but it wasn't until I moved to the San Luis Valley where boy I'll tell you I, I really got into it uh, hot and heavy uh, I've personally been involved in researching or personally investigating over 200 cases so it's not one of my favorite pastimes in the world but you know it's it's a real compelling mystery and I think today we're really gonna uh, I think educate people about the true nature of this mystery there's a lot of misconceptions out there well you selected a couple of very interesting examples of people who were spending a lot of time investigating this phenomenon tell us who they are and why you selected these people to be our victims <laughs> well, first of all, Ted Oliphant is someone that I've known uh, for quite some years. Um, we've sort of casually known each other over the Internet and uh, compared notes uh, for the past 10 or 12 years. And uh, Ted, Ted is the ex-police chief of Fife, Alabama. And uh, that area of the country had an amazing uh, deluge of cases that Ted was very personally involved in investigating. And uh, we've been comparing notes ever since. And I think some of our thinking very early on was that we were dealing with something highly complex that wasn't necessarily due to aliens coming to gather parts for lip and eyes stew or utter souffle. And uh, Phil Hoyle is uh, someone that's in the trenches as we speak right now. He's he's been investigating uh, cases well over ten years in uh, in the United Kingdom. Uh, lately, he's been hot and heavy uh, investigating uh, near the Welsh border uh, some sh uh, very p complex uh, and puzzling sheep mutilations that have been occurring up there. And we're going to obviously get into all this uh, quite a bit more during the show. I think before we start, what is do you think? the biggest misconception people have about what causes cattle mutilations. Linda Moulton Howe? Uh, <laughs> I know, let's start with that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, I think that was Ted laughing. Um, yeah, I, I, I do say that in jest. Uh, Linda was the one that actually trained me to be a field investigator in this realm, and uh, much to her credit, she did bring me up to speed on what to do and how to do it when I was out in the field. It's just when our impressions of what we were um, uncovering and our, our conceptualizing about what or who could be behind these cases uh, began to diverge, then, uh, then I became... I guess in Linda's eyes, possibly part of the problem, not part of any solution. Uh, having said that, I think uh, the popular misconception that aliens are coming from another planet and harvesting soft tissue organs from various types of livestock, I feel is an unfounded theory. I don't think that there's a shred of evidence that would support that. We do have evidence that something high, strange, and possibly paranormal is occurring, but there's no real smoking gun hard data evidence that we're being visited by uh, beings from other star systems that are uh, involved in these cases. Uh, that's not to say that UFOs aren't seen around mutilation sites and even aliens have been, alien type beings have been reported around around mutilation sites very rarely, but they have been reported. So I think the biggest misconception I think is that uh, these cases have a one-size-fits-all solution that has to do with aliens. Well, let's start pursuing this here by simply asking the obvious questions. Let's get our guest on board here. Ted Oliphant, welcome to the PowerCast. Thank you. Ted, as a sheriff, is that where you first got involved in doing investigations into cattle mutilations? Was it part of your work or something that you developed an interest in otherwise? You know, I, in, I have to say in 1990, I made a documentary, UFOs and Need to Know, which made the rounds pretty well sold well and uh, we had done an interview with Linda Howe in that documentary uh, as we did an interview with uh, Bob Lazar and a lot of the people from Roswell, New Mexico, etc. But uh, the first time I encountered uh, the subject matter is when we included an interview with Linda Howe in our documentary. That was 1990. I was a police officer in 1992, 1993, and actually before that too. But I actually didn't see a cattle mutilation uh, until uh, somebody called me up and said, hey, there's a mutilated cow in my uh, field. Can you uh, come look? That was 1992. And so this was in Alabama it. then? Right. This was in Alabama. I'm a police officer in Fife, Alabama at the time. So, again, it's not something I went looking for. It's something that uh, you know got handed to me as a police officer. Okay. Well, that's also part of the problem here. As someone who is a law enforcement officer, do you find it difficult to express any desire to take UFOs seriously? No. UFOs, the subject matter, is is nothing new, uh, and certainly nothing new to the police officers of Fife, Alabama, or Northeast Alabama in general. My boss has seen them. Um, I videotaped one, so yeah, UFOs are certainly there. But we never had UFOs and cattle mutilations at the same time, and so we, we can never link that the two things together. I remember when we first had the cattle mutilations, people said, oh, it's UFOs and aliens are doing this. Other people would say, oh, no, it's a satanic cult doing this. They're making sacrifices. And some people say, oh, no, this is the work of coyotes. Or often people would say, oh, it's, it's just not happening at all. These are crazy people. But, so we had UFOs. We had cattle mutilations. Not in the same place at the same time. All right. Well, let's start looking at the misconceptions as we were talking about with Chris here. Okay, so it's not a demon cult. No. Okay. Now, why do we know it's not a demon cult? Well, the, the, those sort of people 
on the traditional religions, uh, particularly the satanic cults, they do everything in secret. And they don't do it where they can be seen. And when they get through doing what they're doing, they don't leave anything behind to be seen. Uh, the animals that we encountered certainly were left behind intentionally. And somebody wanted to see this. This is what Jacques Vallée originally called a campaign of terror. And he was actually the first person to uh, report on this in a TV show with uh, Rod Sterling and Burgess Meredith and uh, Jose Ferrer. Uh, it was called UFOs It Has Begun. Also was known as UFOs Then and Now, which Jacques Vallée was in the show, and he was the first one to propose that there possibly could be a link between cattle mutilations and UFO phenomena. That was, he was the first person to introduce the subject matter as that, so all credit goes to him on that. Okay, so let's take a look at the serious nature then. Is it the UFO people or the UFO things, entities, or whatever? Well, again, we never had uh, UFOs and cattle mutilations at the same place at the same time. <laughs> Uh, we'd have one or the other, but uh, we never had any cases that you know, conclusively linked it. But we, we did have a couple of cases that were you know, very strange in terms of physical evidence that was left behind and let people wonder. All right, let's look at the traces. Looking at the evidence left behind, is it just a cattle, a cow that's been torn to shreds, or what is it? What's the specific, well, the CSI type analysis of this? Well, when you're talking about, number one, these are crimes. They're felony crimes, cruelty to animals. So you're dealing with the crime scene. What do you do with the crime scene? You recover physical evidence. You then subject it to forensic and scientific analysis in the lab or wherever the materials that you recover has to go to be identified. And then you approach it, as Arthur Conan Doyle Sherlock Holmes would, you rule out one suspect one by one by one until you have whatever is left, and that must be the answer. So it's deductive reasoning, and uh, so your choices are, it's the aliens and UFOs, it's a satanic cult, it's coyotes, scavengers, and predators, or it's your tax dollars at work. So uh, you deduct that which does not fit, and whatever's left over must be the answer. All right, so let's look at what doesn't fit. It's not, obviously, the demon worshippers. What else doesn't fit? Well, uh, coyotes and predators and scavengers, that doesn't fit either because whatever has been done to these animals has been done with some degree of precision. Uh, organs and tissue samples have been removed and there's no blood. There's sharp edges at the incision. There's often evidence of high heat on the animals themselves. There doesn't seem to be very much physical evidence left at the scene other than the animal itself. However, on one occasion, we did recover a material that was aluminum, titanium, oxygen, and silicon. Uh, much of the composition of like the uh, styptic pencil that a uh, shaver uses to stop the bleeding. And she's cut himself with this razor, you hit it with the white pencil and stops bleeding. The material recovered at one of the crime scenes that uh, was very, very similar to that, aluminum, titanium, oxygen, and silicon. Now, it did behave rather strangely once it was recovered. I put it in a plastic bag, you know, like a cellophane wrapper from my cigarettes to, to keep it safe, and put it in my pocket, and drove back to the police station. When I took it back to the police station and took it out of my pocket, I was actually on the phone with Linda Howe at the time, and I, t I couldn't get all the material out of the plastic, and I touched it with the tip of a ballpoint pen, which is brass. And when that metal hit the, sub the substance, it melted in a clear, into a clear liquid with striations. Well, um, well, well, it hit what substance? It was aluminum, titanium, oxygen, and silicone. It looked like the center of an Oreo cookie when we found it on the crime scene. 
And uh, when I, you know, when it came in contact with metal, it turned into a clear liquid. So the material that I was able to recover, I put in glass. It was sent off to uh, David Pritchard at MIT and another other universities. They said it was aluminum, titanium, oxygen, and silicone. And, uh, David Pritchard at MIT thought that for it to behave the way that it did when I told him that it melted when I touched it with metal, he said it was probably held together with an electrostatic charge. When I hit it with the metal, it grounded it, and it just turned into liquid. Really strange. Anything that is strange enough to indicate a non-terrestrial origin? I, I saw UFOs and videotaped UFOs when I was up there uh, in Alabama, but nothing to uh, to suggest uh, number one a UFO, number two to suggest beings from a UFO, and then number three to say that the beings from the UFO are extraterrestrial. So uh, no, nothing like that. What was what was strange was the lack of physical evidence left at the crime scene. Very seldom was there anything other than the animal itself. Uh, most of these mutilations seem to happen at 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, just the absence of evidence and the fact that it happened in the middle of the night and nobody heard anything led to lots of speculation in a lot of different directions. I'll just leave it at that. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Christopher O'Brien as our special guest co-host on the Paracast, joined by Philip Hoyle and Ted Oliphant. Chris, you had a question. I do, Ted. Uh, first of all, just to give uh, the audience, a, uh, I think, a better understanding of your involvement in these cases, about how many cases uh, were you personally involved with in that, uh, that area, northeastern area of Alabama? Nineteen ninety two to nineteen ninety three, I believe the first one was October twentieth. Nineteen ninety two was the first one we discovered, reported by a businessman, John Strawn in Albertville, Alabama. To the last one, which I was gonna say about mid April nineteen ninety three, thirty six cases in six months. Now these are the cases that were reported by the farmers. Many cases were not reported at all, and I, I think that happens an awful lot. Since then I went back to Alabama 
in uh, 2002. Uh, the mutilations started almost immediately after I arrived there with a film crew, and we stumbled across three cases when we were there. I've also seen cases in uh, Northern California between times, but uh, during the peak of, I'd say, you know, 36 cases in six months, and those, again, are the ones that get reported. Many cases go without being reported. Well, I have a quick question for you. Well, first of all, an observation. Let's go ahead, I think, and bring uh, the audience up to speed and, and, and kind of define, I think, what a classic mutilation uh, is considered to be by investigators. So how would you define a true cattle mutilation? From what I've seen, there seems to be variations on a theme. Typically, what I saw was an incision in the mouth area, internal and external, like a great big oval, about the size of a football, head of tissue, you know, hide and hair, uh, removed from the jaw area. Uh, typically, sex organs are removed, males and females, uh, with what I call like a stovepipe incision, something gone in, taken out a large core and removed it from the animal, again, without blood at the incision line, which is strange. Udders are sometimes removed, or pieces of the udders, or sections of the udders. Uh, individual teats are removed. The rear end of the animal, uh, typically, is sex organs are removed. And, you know, like, again, this at least these start stovetop or stovepipe incisions, you know, uh, males and females. I've also seen uh, goats, and I know there's been cases of uh, burrows and uh, even a squirrel. So uh, very, very, very strange. But typically, large excision on the animal, organs of tissue removed, bloodless incision, that's about classic. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, also, an observation I would have is, is oftentimes the soft tissue organs that are removed uh, tend to be the, one, the organs that humans develop cancer in the most, uh, is one observation that I've had over the years in the many cases that I've investigated. Uh, what do you say, Ted, to people that, that uh, are skeptical of this whole thing and, and try to palm it off as uh, just being unusual scavenger action? I mean, uh, what is your stock response to that? Well, I usually don't talk about cases unless I'm personally involved in the investigation. Uh, nine times out of ten, if I'm talking about this, is about an animal I've seen at a crime scene. Um, as for uh, misperceptions about what it is, I still think there's a lot of that. Uh, you've got, you know, the skeptic societies that say that there are no cattle mutilations, which isn't crazy. You've got police departments who are wanting the public not to be panicked, and so they'll give them misinformation like saying there are no mutilations. Um, the farmers are certainly not skeptics about it because they're the ones that know that there's a difference between what's happened to their animal and what normally happens to animals. And that's your first cue uh, that uh, there's something different going on here. The farmers are saying, well, that's this. I've never seen this before. I've been doing this forever. So misinformation has got to be the best friend of the people who are actually responsible for these crimes. Uh, they've just got to be thrilled the way people say, oh, it's aliens or it's a satanic cult. And, you know, the blame is always thrown in the direction uh, other than theirs. Uh, they've, whoever's doing this has got what they call plausible deniability because everybody would say, oh, it's ridiculous that such and such would be doing that. So they've got a built-in uh, defense mechanism just by what they're doing. You know, the, uh, the, as uh, Valet used to say about some of the crazy cases, you know, the crazy theories gain momentum just by their very existence. They have a life of their own. And uh, it seems to be a subject that uh, used to have more of a life of its own in terms of the misinformation. But I think we uh, hear less of it uh, as being connected with UFOs and aliens now. But with that said, 
I've got to say that there are certainly some cases I can tell you about where uh, paranormal phenomena was reported um, at the scene or near the scene about the time these cases occurred. So I keep an open mind, but as a police officer when I was looking at these cases, if I'm looking at a suspect other than the two-legged kind, my problem, um, the community's got a problem if the cop is preoccupied with saying, oh, aliens are doing this, you know. Whatever it is, uh, you know, it's happening on the ground. And uh, somebody needs to be talking about it. But in almost, uh, what, 40 years of this, uh, no one's ever been caught, and that adds to the mystery, too. And certainly on some occasions, uh, UFOs seem to appear before or after these cases uh, happen, and that really... Uh, muddies up the water tremendously for you know people who are trying to find out what's going on they get all these diversions and it throws them off it seems to be part of it all the time and i think uh, phil hoyle can uh, tell you about some of the strange things that have gone over there in the uk you know what okay that's the introduction phil thanks for coming along on this week's episode of the Paracast. before you talk about some of the cases how did you get dragged into researching cattle mutilations well, it was um, a situation really that uh, I was heavily involved in uh, UFO investigations anyway. And um, obviously that we were fully aware of what was happening in the, in the United States and uh, in, uh, in, in South America regarding the, uh, the animal mutilations, obviously in particular with cattle. Uh, we, we started to become aware in the, uh, the mid-90s of a number of uh, cases that mimicked the kind of procedures uh, that, were, that were being discovered, obviously, in the, in the United States. So uh, that was when the alarm bell started the first ring, and um, we started to make inquiries then and to follow up on a number of cases. And then obviously we could see graphically that the, the kind of injuries that we were, we were actually seeing at the farms were identical in many, many ways to uh, the states, uh, although it was uh, mainly to do with, uh, with sheep here and not cattle. There are a few um, cattle reports, but no, nothing like, uh, um, like in the US. But I mean, obviously my involvement with, um, with the UFO subject, it was one that led to our investigations being expanded Expanded, and uh, and then so obviously uh, we we have all the time try to keep an open mind because like Ted says you can really if you don't keep an open mind and start from scratch you can actually build on the mistakes of maybe others that have been before you and and then you really need to go back to basics and reevaluate everything that uh, you're coming into contact with because the subject is so complex if it was easy to solve it would have been solved before now you know and, okay uh, you raised one issue there phil which i wanted to kind of follow up on before we go on the mistakes that people have made in doing this kind of research so from your point of view what kind of mistakes have been made the things that have just basically made the research go nowhere or backwards well, I can say I'm, um, I'm basically referring to what's gone in in the UK in as much that a lot of times there's been cases brought to people's attention where they haven't been fully investigated in any shape or form on a scientific level. Information's been passed to people that have been involved in the UFO phenomena and, and, and virtually this information's been passed by phone or by post. Now, you, you cannot make a, a, a proper evaluation of what's taking place about making taking interviews from people that might have lived in the area, the farmers, anything that's been cited or uh, uh, or um, observed that's unusual. You, you need you need hands on in the environment. You need to see the carcasses. You need to to see these things in front of you. To, you know, and they are quite uh, quite baffling when you see some of the injuries. Now, what I'm getting at is that. 
if you've got people that are involved in in this phenomena and and making reports over the phone or by mail, uh, there are a lot of assumptions that you know, people are jumping to. There's, there's not enough information for a valid report. And if you've got that, and then other people come in afterwards, after these people are retired or whatever, well then, obviously, you know, people are taking for granted that these, this research has been done in a, in a scientific manner, and, and, it, and it has not been. It's, uh, we haven't got anything like the um, facilities or uh, the cooperation with uh, uh, law enforcement or, or vets that uh, you have had in the U.S. So what I'm basically saying is all the time you must keep your mind open that you've got to reevaluate and take, take on board new parts of the puzzle. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a very good point. One of the things that I've noticed is when the media gets involved in publicizing uh, some uh, an outbreak, let's say, of a series of these cases, it tends to bring out misidentified scavenger action and amateur appraisals of this types of uh, this type of scavenger action that appears high strange to the untrained eye and then all of a sudden you seem to to have a whole flurry of reports that come in that at least in my personal uh, experience and opinion are nothing more than uh, misinformed appraisals by amateurs thinking that uh, a particular dead animal out in the field uh, has been has been mutilated when in fact what they're observing oftentimes is uh, standard scavenger and predator action on, on carcasses and I think that this self-nullifying aspect uh, is is one of the it just to me it's it's almost ingenious it's, it's a self-nullifying mystery that tends to to draw out misperceptions and tends to draw out um, a lot of pop culture thinking, which then nullifies the the real cases and and gives the skeptics and the debunkers um, a way to attack uh, the true nature of the mystery very effectively. And um, I think that this has been a major problem uh, through the years investigating these cases. And at the same time, it's quite ingenious because it does almost self-nullify uh, the mystery based on, on people's misperceptions. And I think that's a really good point that you bring up. About how many cases uh, do you figure that you have been personally involved in investigating, Phil? Well, uh, me personally, uh, maybe about uh, 15 to 20 of uh, different farms that uh, uh, have had, because you know, obviously by the nature of the animals, we have a situation where we've uh, obviously a lot more sheep than cattle. And it seems to be that it may, it one case there was 45 uh, ewes that were actually um, killed and well some are actually alive to be honest but they actually 45 died in all so I mean that was just in one incident on one farm but um, my other colleagues as well have been obviously involved in this for the past 10 years also and so what's interesting to us is the fact that we actually go around looking for the um, actual evidence to these uh, these types of mutilations. I actually call on hundreds and hundreds of farms down the down the Shropshire Welsh borders. So I'm actually going around, actually knocking on doors of farmhouses and asking, you know. Um, have any uh, unusual events taken place? Have they had any missing animals, rustling of animals? And slowly get get onto the subject of uh, any animals been found with any strange kind of injuries. And I carry a photo folder that actually sh graphically shows these injuries. And slowly 
just make make an awareness to the farmers in the active areas and we leave pamphlets and then hoping that if they do discover an animal with, with that uh, mutilating signatures they will give me a call and I can go straight out there and then make an evaluation if it is a true uh, mutilation or, or something else that can be explained so I mean it's 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 all the time we are we're looking at it we're trying to evaluate what's going on uh, who we can bring in that's got expertise in different areas it's, it's an open book and it's and it is a mystery because no particular you can't turn around and stand and say x is doing this it seems to be there's there's definitely that's to say deception is an understatement it seems that it, it evolves when you seem to understand one part it evolves to something else and uh, it's is um, obviously very uh, very well funded uh, or you know a highly uh, intelligent and deceptive program to cover the tracks uh, by whoever or whatever's doing it secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox. Plus, a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We have special guest host Christopher O'Brien with us. Our guests are animal mutilation investigators Ted Oliphant and Philip Hoyle. And now the, the red herring comes in, of course. Tricksters, hoaxers, misdirection, misinformation. That's <laughs> the trickster. Oh, yes. So we need to follow this up. And anyone who wants to take the question, speak up first. Is the government, UK, American, whatever, are they engaged in any of this behavior just to misdirect our attention? Yes. Okay. Chris, you know what? You answer the question. So there. (laughs) I I couldn't help but uh, chime in on that one. You know, this is, um, I've, I've always said uh, from the very beginning of my involvement in this whole mystery that uh, it appears to me, in my personal opinion, that there are multiple groups involved. There seems to be various agendas at work here. And one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, uh, cattle mutilations or livestock mutilations um, actually fall into uh, several categories. I think Ted uh, did a good job of defining what a classic mutilation is, but... One of the things that I've noticed is that you seem to see sloppier mutilations that appear to be high strange. In other words, the animal was killed somehow and then disfigured in the case of the San Luis Valley uh, with a sharp implement. I have only had four cases uh, that we've scientifically determined high heat is a cutting agent. So most of these cases uh, at least appear to me, an amateur, uh, to be done with, with a sharp uh, cutting instrument like a scalpel or, or a really sharp buck knife. 
And one of the things that I've noticed is after we've started maybe a whole slew or a series of cases, the ones at the end of the series tend to be sloppier. They don't seem to be as professional. And they seem to almost be done in a in a rushed or hurried manner. I've even had some cases, uh, two or three uh, by recollection, that seem to actually be training cases where you would have what appears to be a very professionally done cut, and then it's finished by somebody that's not quite as proficient at the actual cutting action with the sharp implement. So You know, that implies, though, Chris, that there is a human agent involved here. This is not being done in a paranormal fashion by E.T., etc., Exactly. And that, I think that's one of the points that I'm trying to make here is I, feel, I personally feel, and again, this is my own opinion, but I, I feel that a vast majority of the tr- true mutilation cases, and this is after we factored out the misidentified scavenger action. Uh, I've seen magpies, for instance, and crows create perfect circles in the rear end of cows, uh, pluck out eyes and, and, and peck out around uh, the mouth in a, in a way that to the amateur eye or to a person that doesn't know what they're looking at, it appears high strange. Animals do have the capacity uh, to create unusual cutting uh, type incisions on animals. I, I don't care who you are. I, I personally have seen this. So... I think the bottom line is that we are dealing with, uh, at least in part of this, a majority of these cases, in my opinion, we are dealing with human perpetrators that are involved in this. And uh, I know this isn't a popular theory to the you know folks that really want this to be aliens and, and want to be involved in some sort of uh, fear-based thinking. But it, to my personal opinion, these are uh, done, majority of them are done by humans. And... Uh, you know, in the case of, of, of Phil's sheep cases that he's been investigating, there really are very few predators and scavengers in that part of the world that are capable of doing the types of things that uh, that we see in the West, the Western United States. So um, I think Phil's cases are very important because uh, you don't have that possible deniability in terms of scavengers and predators that you do in the, in the Rocky Mountains or in the western United States. Yeah, could, could, if I just mention or come in here regarding some of the points that Chris has made, is that open-minded is, is the understatement here in, in as much that it would seem, because I've done um, like obviously an intense evaluation of, of Ted's work, Linda Mottlehouse, Chris's, obviously part of the, of the research was to study in depth every single item that, that we could possibly access on a global scale. That's why the liaisons were actually instigated. And, and what came across in some, some of the actual uh, mutilations was, was not only a difference in procedure, but it was to do with ge- geographical uh, differences, that, that in some mutilations you would have have a high degree of technology and in and, and some others and even one uh, one instance I can't recall exactly what part of the US it was but an actual scalpel was found on the actual carcass and if you've got ET doing everything you should have uh, really a, a standard set of technologies and procedures and that quality should be across the board and that's not what's been found and, and I do believe that there could well be a very very big element of a terrestrial um, agenda to try and create fear about the possible presence of uh, outside intelligence or unknown intelligences I think there could be a comp- uh, disinformation programs within programs within programs it is very complex you can't just rubber stamp this and say it is X 
because it is definitely not, and we're seeing that in, here in the UK. But we, we have a number of instances that have been quite uh, interesting. One of my colleagues a few years ago, about seven or eight years ago, uh, had uh, the task of trying to trace some government establishments that were connected to uh, investigating investigators uh, were looking into uh, like people like ourselves. And um, he called a particular establishment, government, government of establishment in the north of England. And when he started to make inquiries along the lines of animal mutilations, uh, the lady seemed to be wrong-footed and she actually stated to him, you don't mean the alien problem. And that was her words. I mean, I wish it had been recorded. And, <laughs> and, you know, it was, and we're thinking, well, A, probably, you know, this, this, this woman is obviously a civil servant and she comes out with a statement. <laughs> You know, so maybe maybe it's a situation where she was pre-prepared to make a, uh, a disinformation uh, statement to try and confirm it was aliens. Uh, but obviously, there's a there's a lot of um, very you know very deceptive and clever policy here, uh, saying nothing's clear cut. So I mean. Um, no pun intended, of course. But, oh, yes. Uh, you know. Well, we have to now just have our raving laughter here. So let's just pause <laughs> for raising trickster laughter. Go ahead, please, Phil. Well, like I say, it's, 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 it's not clear cut. There's, there's, for every reason this is being done, there's got to be you know, an import, important um, reason or uh, there's something. What's indicated is that maybe they're looking for something. Obviously, it, it, like uh, Ted has said, it could be TSE, BSE related. Uh, there's definitely certain organs and tissues that are being sampled. I mean, we've got instances in, 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 in this, the Shropshire Welsh border where you've got a situation where if a farmer finds an animal, say, on the, on the 5th of May in a particular field for, uh, for, uh, from the farmhouse, following year, within one or day, uh, a day either side of that date, they will find another animal killed the same way. And again, the following year, it's like to come back even to the same spot exactly within a few days from the previous years. So it, is it to do with tracking a genetic uh, contamination of, of the food chain through the next newborn of the next generation because the high intensity time for the sheep mutilations uh, is now during the lambing season. That's why we've had a number of new cases. So, I mean, whatever's going on, they're spending big you know, big sums of money to do this if it's been done. And obviously we are convinced a lot of it is being done terrestrially, uh, but uh, it's also trying to create this fear uh, that you know all aliens are coming down and dissecting everything and doing you know what but i also feel there is an element on the paranormal side that something could be watching what we're doing or vice versa so it's it's we're still running around in circles to be quite honest trying to fully understand this very very complex but also very disturbing phenomena maybe that is the whole purpose here which is to drive us all nuts I didn't mean to ch I'm sorry to chime in. I, I think to drive nuts is important. Now, originally, Jacques Vallée called it a campaign of terror. You talk to a farmer in New Brunswick the last couple of years who's lost over 100 animals in this way, Werner. And he's talking about the technology that's being used on the animals. He's saying the industry is trying to force the little man out of the farming business. And that's his theory. That's his conspiracy theory. And it may be right. I also have another one. I, I have a feeling that the spread of chronic wasting disease into the food chain that uh, started back in 96 uh, in northern Colorado, the first counties that seemed to be affected by chronic wasting disease in the deer herds, for instance, in the, the elk, um, happened in counties that probably have the highest per 
per capita uh, involvement uh, in the militia movements that we saw back in the in the mid to, to late 90s. This brings up a really interesting point uh, that, that Philip has brought up and, and now Ted uh, in terms of patterning, which could possibly give us some insight into the motivations behind whatever various agendas, and I do use that in the plural. Have you noticed, Ted, any sort of patterning in terms of anything that you can look at and potentially predict cases? I know that I've my head has been in this place for a long time. Why don't you relate to us some of the patterning that you've seen? Without a doubt, there is something you can buy through booksellers or through bookstore that will give you a date where all of the mutilations are going to appear. The book, or the kid is called actually a calendar. It is Llewellyn's Metaphysical Calendar. And when I got a copy of Llewellyn's Metaphysical Calendar, it has a day, some listings of all the famous non-traditional religion holidays, so you can use your imagination there. Every case that I had in Alabama landed on one of those days, and I think you should turn this over to Phil Hoyle here. Well, hold on, hold on. Before we go to Phil on that, yeah, I thought you kind of gave a blanket sort of denial that uh, you felt that there was any sort of potential was, as Gene put it, satanic, but I, I would broaden it and say a cult-type element here. Uh, what you're describing sort of refutes what you said. So you feel that there could be some possible occult correlation here? I personally do not. I think somebody else wants you to. Okay, I like that. Good answer. Phil, what about you? Well, obviously, uh, like I said, I mean, I think the, the players that are in charge of this are are orchestrating every avenue they possibly can to make sure that they, they get investigators and, and uh, in particular, away from the true scent. But coming back to the moon phase, uh, you see, part of my work also is to do with, you know, with investigating people uh, or investigating cases of, uh, of unknowns, UFO sightings, all sorts of things. And there is a connection between some sightings and the moon phase. Um, I so I agree. I've seen that, too. Uh, continue. You know, so I I come across people that uh, you know everyday people. I mean, farmers or, or, or not, and a lot of people are obviously are not farmers, and uh, they're seeing things that clearly cannot be explained, or even even you know, talk to uh, go back to you know generations, and uh, uh, there there is an element of of paranormal to this. But what percentage? That's that's the that's that's the, the key question. We we could literally have a situation where uh, it is a few percent compared to the vast majority as is being put under satanic cults and it's definitely not satanic cults in any shape or form we talk to police officers ourselves who, who work in areas to do with all sorts of these peripheral subjects and they said this does not carry the signature in any shape or form to satanic cults predators definitely not i mean if they do i mean i've had i've had farmers uh, you know say to me that the injuries that we've been looking at have been caused by squirrels and foxes and badgers and i said well <laughs> if that's the case they they really do need to be urgently recruited into the national health health system so they can continue their surgeries and, 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 you know it's just it's just absolutely beyond belief that some of the actual explanations so i mean sometimes we just cringe and think well you know the earth is is not flat and the moon's not made of cheese so but i mean that's what people want to believe or they they've been told by people and they and without question accepted it and that's what we can't do we cannot accept um because it's a change in, and when you when you understand one part, it evolves or changes or metamorphoses into something else, and you're forever thinking, well, you know, where do we go from here? You, it, it's literally all the time you're going back to to basics and to the drawing board, and you're constantly having to try and outwit something that's trying to outwit you. So, in in, in that context, you know, it's it's uh, to say it's 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 it can give you more than a headache, uh, uh, but at the end of the day, we've got a situation where we've got people claiming. 
all sorts of things and we're having to really document and look for common denominators, consistencies in testimony, in what they say, what happens, where it happens, what times is relevant to moon phase, all these different things. We're looking at the whole a spectrum of different ideas and theories and just try, really trying to quantify really what's taking place in front of us and uh, it's no easy task but I mean sometimes we think we're going forward and others we think we're going backwards two steps back four steps forward or vice versa Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www dot f-a-t-e-m-a-g dot com what are you waiting for your fate awaits hi this is Bud Hopkins and you're listening to the Paracast and I completely enthusiastically endorse this program it's an absolutely great program with opportunities to stretch out and talk we have Christopher O'Brien as our guest host. We're talking about animal mutilations, not just cattle. And we have with us Ted Oliphant and Philip Hoyle. And in a few minutes, we'll let you know about their various affiliations. We're trying to explore some of the cases. Now, maybe this is a good time then. Philip or Ted, whoever wants to volunteer, let's talk about a classic case in detail as to an animal mutilation, one for which there is no solution, a ready solution. Who wants to be volunteering well, first? I'm going to volunteer. This is Ted just volunteering really quick, and then I'll let Phil go. What Phil Hoyle is seeing in England and the U.K. is totally different than what I saw in Alabama in 1992 and 1993. And that's very important. And uh, the other thing, point I wanted to make out is, you know, all the animals, females, okay, the cows who were mutilated had calves within two weeks of being mutilated. Some were being mutilated while they were in the birth process. Um, I think that's important if we're talking about TSEs being studied because TSEs are like, you know, CJD or BSE or whatever, are only transferred from the mother to the offspring during the birth process, not gestation, but during the birth process. So that's interesting why some of these animals have been mutilated while they were giving birth as well as before and after. Are you assuming then that again, they actually have some reason to mutilate them at that point in time? I don't know, but uh, ask Bill Hoyle about uh, the animal that's had its uh, reproductive organs removed. That's a very curious new case. And, much, and the way it was done and the, the damage I've seen to the tissue and to the wounds and the incisions on the animals, it feels like seen something totally different than I saw. All right, well, that is even a more interesting subject here, which is why is it different in the USA compared to the U.K.? Shouldn't it all be the same thing? Well, I'll still go on that one. Uh, it's, he's doing it now. He's the guy who's out there in the trenches right now. Okay, Phil, what do you think? Why is it different in the U.K. than the U.S.A.? Well, like I said, that's the uh, 
64 million dollar question there's so much there should be a global consistency if it's to do with if alien to doing it because the technology should be able to be delivered instantaneously to any part of the world and it's clearly not uh, there seems to be um, a procedural difference a technology difference I mean just coming back slightly to what Ted just mentioned about uh, animals being actually mutilated in the process of giving birth we, we came across a case uh, around 10 years ago at a small farm again on the Welsh border where um, a ewe was actually found and mutilated uh, but also um, in the process of giving birth to a lamb the lamb was found its body partly out of the birth canal but the lamb had been decapitated and obviously the head was never found so it was actually killed and decapitated in the process of birth so we have found that here and um, when we look at the, some of the actual like the actual injuries it, it, when we when Maybe it's a bit different in as much in the U.S., especially in the areas that, uh, you know, Colorado and, and so forth, is that uh, this, this country has, a, in the winter, an enormous amount of rainfall, and uh, we can we access some areas, and there's literally not a footprint in in, in very deep mud. So everything, whatever's doing this has got to come in and be airborne. You can cannot access it. You couldn't access it by um, by any, any shape or form in, on the uh, road or a quad bike or anything. You'd leave too many tracks. So, I mean, it must be airborne. Born to, to a great deal of, with this, and uh, it's a situation where that you can rule out the village idiot or satanic cults instantly because I don't know of any that can have helicopters. So, I mean, uh, with all these different things that are taking place, we've got, we've got a number of farms, one in particular that we're actually uh, monitoring. Uh, we have a number of cameras that, that are our, our, uh, motion sensor stealth cameras that can take up to 5,000 photographs and about 2,500 video clips. And these are picking up unusual things that we can't explain at the moment, uh, spheres of light and small spheres, and there's a lot of help helicopter monitoring activities so something important is going on in these areas and uh, you know we're just constantly trying to find a new evidence that might turn around and say you know point us in the direction of what who and why this has been done we had 90 uh, percent of the cases in alabama involved helicopters that's really that, important that's a really good point ted continue we had a lot of them and uh, and they say, you know, unmarked, you know, it's all conspiracy theory. Well, there were unmarked helicopters. The FAA even saw them trying to hail them on the radio, and they, re they would not respond to the FAA even. So it was uh, something. And we knew that helicopters were landing and refueling on the mountain from 101st Airborne in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And they wouldn't land at Redstone Arsenal. They would land at a private airfield on Sand Mountain. And they would come in with two Chinooks. They'd unload fuel bladders. And then dozens of small scout ships would come in, and they'd refuel them, and they'd take off. I called, yeah, I had the newspaper call up the uh, 101st and following Monday, and talked to Major Gribbons, and uh, say, well, did you have any other craft in this area? And he goes, oh, no, it wasn't us. <laughs> so we knew they were there, but they wouldn't cop to it. Uh, you know, it's, it's like anybody else in the government. You, you don't get the truth out of them unless you have a gun to their head. Um, Ted, and I'm not saying that they I'm well, the question would be wrong. The question would be then, Ted, if Rahm Emanuel called them up and said, I need to know. Will he have to have an answer at that point, or will they just lie to anybody? Oh, so, well, you know, what we had hoped for was a mechanical failure when the helicopter would come down and we could, uh, or, or under some circumstance, one would come down and that we could find out who was in the helicopters, right? And then what we were going to do, we were going to arrest them, and then whoever came to pick them up, we were going to arrest them until we finally found out who was at the head of it all. Right. Uh, but, you know, 
and one helicopter did go down. I was witness, and they said it had all sorts of crazy electrical equipment inside of it, and uh, they roped it off real quick. Um, that was not in our county. That was one county over, but it was all at the same time. So helicopters, you know, uh, somebody's got some money, and, you know, if it is a campaign of terror, like Jacques Vallée suggests, and, or if it is a conspiracy to wipe out the little man in farming, as Werner suggests, I think it's I think it's a valid question at this point. Uh, is that also part of it? Now you know, um, it's not any one thing. You talk about it's you know it might be three things, it might be five things, it might be seven things. You have no idea what you're dealing with. That makes it doubly difficult. The one thing I want to point out, based on uh, your very interesting observation about the helicopter activity uh, down in in your area, uh, we we had two county sheriff's departments that actually attempted to shoot down helicopters that were being spotted uh, around mutilation sites. And in one instance, they actually uh, hit the engine and uh, caused it to start smoking. And they were hoping that they had actually literally shot it down because there were so many cases occurring almost nightly uh, in the fall of 75 and the fall of 77. That, uh, yeah, I can relate to that. They were, shooting, they were shooting, trying to bring them down. So uh, I, uh, I I bought an uh, Australian Eddie's Enfield with uh, British 303 rounds uh, just for the occasion. <laughs> Did you explain ever what that stuff? means to people who aren't familiar with all that stuff? Uh, well, you know, uh, we got some reporters. One came down in our area where the crime scenes been going on and it was unmarked. I'm sure that we and several other people have opened fire on it. You could not buy a high-powered rifle on Sand Mountain when there were cattle mutilations up there. They were all sold out. All the gun stores were sold out of high-powered rifles when the mutilations were happening. People were pissed, and they were going to take one down. We were going to take one down. Wow. Well, I guess, uh, you know, these ranchers, they've once they get to a point where uh, X number of cases have occurred, Everybody goes into a place of fear, especially when the media gets involved and starts ratcheting up the, the fear uh, element. Uh, it's ba based on my experience. Uh, people tend to uh, start to do things that normally they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't do. And I think to right. protect their livelihood, uh, to protect uh, their families, uh, to protect their airspace. I mean, people, I think, uh, once they get to a certain breaking point, they're prone to do things that they normally, I think, wouldn't do. And we definitely saw... This happened based on you know extensive interviews with uh, county sheriffs in the area um, during the mid you know uh, mid to late seventies in the San Luis Valley. I mean there were posse's out there waiting for helicopters to come down from the Taylor Ranch where many people thought that these uh, th these teams were being based out of. Um, they were they were, they were trying to ambush them. The, the military uh, or whoever is in these helicopters got thermographic infrared. You know, scanners on their suckers, and they can see you, and they can see you from delays off before you ever see them. And you know, if if you know, if they can see you, and they can judge color and stuff like that. You know, it's like I talked about uh, thermographic infrared scanning when they were having the mutilations up in uh, Alabama. That you know, they can see which cows are colder than other ones. The first thing that goes is an animal sicker and dies. The peripheral circulatory system it shuts down. So the animals are at different temperature than all the other animals in the field. If you can see the animal that's got a different temperature, you can find what's going to die anyway. You can find out why it's going to die. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, one of the things that always impressed me about Gabe uh, Valdez, who was a New Mexico State Patrolman uh, in the Dulce, New Mexico area uh, during the late 70s, one of the things that he uh, felt uh, very strongly was that uh, certain animals were being pre targeted for mutilations and uh, in one case they even found fluorescent 
paint material that had been uh, painted on the on the tops of the animals, uh, almost in a, in a way so that they could be seen and and picked up uh, by you know from the air. And um, of course, to the eye, you couldn't see this paint, but as soon as you threw a black light on it, it would fluoresce and and be clearly marked. Um, I want to, uh, before we get too far away from the whole idea of uh, correlations and patterning, I'd, I'd love to ask both Ted and Phil here, um, you know, moon phase correlation is something early on that I really felt was a, a very strong potential for, you know, some sort of pa- uh, determination of a pattern. Um, Ted, did you ever, first I'm going to ask Ted that Phil, uh, did you ever see any sort of of uh, time correlation uh, uh, to a moon cycle, and if you did, uh, what was that? No, uh, we. Uh, I wasn't paying attention to uh, moon phases when we were doing this. Really, I was doing everything else, but moon phases wasn't one of them. Well, do you realize that there's um, there's a moon uh, phase that's in the, for instance, the Farmer's Almanac. There are certain nights uh, where I think it's uh, uh, around the full moon that blood flows uh, easier, and it's. Uh, it's more efficient to slaughter an animal uh, before and after. I think it's two or three days before, two or three days after a full moon. Did you know that? Very interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. How about you, Phil? Uh, you mentioned the moon phase correlation unprompted. Uh, give us some insight into your thinking on that. Well, yes. Like I said earlier, that um, we're looking at every every aspect and every part of the spectrum to do with this. And um, the moon phase uh, came in because obviously we were checking uh, obviously the dates that animals were discovered against uh, moon phase, and um, obviously the connection to do with uh, female menstrual cycle and ovulation and, and other factors where the moon phase ha- has an influence. So we were looking at this, just thinking, well, are there certain elevated times Times of the month that the uh, perpetrators would target the animals, so we could preempt that by being in certain areas and maybe to monitor and obviously detect the, the, the true perpetrators. So it's uh, it's it's another additional part of the uh, ongoing endless uh, uh, investigation and, ex- and uh, extension of our, of our thinking patterns. Coming back to one of the points you've just made regarding uh, the pre-selection, if I recall the um, this uh, like uh, paint substance that was detected uh, with. Uh, um, uh, Gabe Valdez uh, was um, comp- comprised of a magnesium and potassium. Obviously, it can only be detected through a, uh, a few, by the use of, a, of a black light. But but that in in particular is something that's always always been something that's puzzled me because with a number of the mutilations uh, in the Shropshire Welsh borders, the the intelligences behind the mutilations had the ability to come in again and again and again over a period of sometimes up to a week plus and actually actually access the same carcass and take another piece away of tissue. Away. Right, right, right. I was going to ask you that because we had this up on a, a ranch in Red Bluff, California. The mutilators would come back weeks later and take them. Yeah. Well, we, we, in one case in particular, in particular, the, the, the obviously they came back every night for about a week and took another part of the animal uh, tissue away, and we could never understand why wouldn't the, the, these intelligences take the, the animal if they wanted it? They just seemed to be able to walk in and do it and walk out again. And, and as you as you said earlier, the you know even these little groups of the farmers in the uh, area of Shropshire and uh, Wales, that uh, a lot of them wouldn't actually tell their neighbours what was going on because uh, they just 
felt it was something that was derogatory to their farming uh, methods or personally and, uh, that these animals were dying in mysterious circumstances. They wouldn't even tell their closest neighbours. But what they were doing is the families were actually, you know, st staying out late at night, uh, using night vision or, and, and cameras and binoculars, trying to, you know, to detect these, these incidents. And in some of the cases to the north of England that we were involved with, I mean, farmers were, you know, staying up in one particular case. that They stayed up all night long uh, monitoring a certain area and uh, they saw absolutely nothing. They heard absolutely nothing. But when the sun came up, there in front of them were a number of mutilated sheep. They also had the early But they versions. saw nothing. They saw nothing. They saw and heard nothing. You know, so that's what they claim to us. Uh, but they did say that um, you know what they were using the early versions of the stealth cameras, and on those cameras, the, the, they all they captured were white spheres or columns of light or energy. There was nothing else on the SD cards. So I mean, it, it's it's constantly you know we, it's like I say it's the most baffling subject you can ever imagine. Uh, you know what? That's so, a good point at which to split for hour number two. The baffling subject, the most baffling subject ever imagined. And we'll try to find out ways to make it less baffling with Phil Hoyle, Ted Oliphant, our special guest host is Christopher O'Brien. We'll be back on the other side of the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Our special guest host is the trickster himself, Christopher O'Brien. Let's have a little trickster commentary there. It'd be the trickster that'd be cutting up your cows and sheep. Oh, God. You know, I said don't quit your day job, but this is his day job. <laughs> we have Phil Hoyle, and he's with a group. You were saying? <laughs> I heard that, Ted, although it only came across kind of half, half-assed. I think Ted just basically, we don't want to mention what he just did. We're a family kind of show here. Ted Oliphant, where can our listeners learn more about the things you do? Well, I've got the, the ever-popular myspace.com slash New Orleans Photography. And I'm a photographer. I'm in New Orleans, so New Orleans Photography there at MySpace. And I've got lots of stuff I've written about, some music videos I've done, uh, 97 photo galleries of what New Orleans looks like in San Francisco and Hawaii and a few other places like that. You know, I take pictures down here, and uh, I like it. Okay. Are you sure that's you? It looks like, oh, yeah, there you are. There you are. Charlie Oliphant. Yeah. Well, I look a little bit different than I used to. I lost 40 pounds when I shaved my head, and I met a young girl, and I married her. you got to watch about those young girls. I did the same thing. I yeah, married a nice <laughs> young girl from Brooklyn, New York, and now it's 400,000 years later. <laughs> Moses. Okay, they say Mazel Tov, where we are. Philip Hoyle, where do we find more of the things that you do? 
Well, uh, our uh, animal mutilation uh, um, site is uh, can be found at the APFU.org, and it stands for like Animal Pathology Field Unit. It was actually the name was derived uh, deliberately to separate it away from any UFO connection, because obviously, as we are talking about, the jury is uh, is still out. So um, that's uh, covering the that site covers all the uh, UK uh, uh, mutilations that uh, have virtually ever been detected. Because uh, obviously we've liaised and uh, cooperate with all the um, previous um, animal mutilation investigators for the UK, and everything that, that can be found virtually is on, is on that site. And um, obviously, there's uh, it, it's an ongoing learning curve at the moment. There is so many new cases that we are detecting along down this uh, Shropshire Welsh border. There are other parts that are active as well. Uh, some of my colleagues are working down in the, the Dartmoor area, and uh, there's been a number of cases, some back to the 70s, where ponies have been killed in, in in the same way and uh, at the end of the day it's to do with awareness uh, the farmers and the general public aren't aware of the of the of the phenomena so a lot of these uh, these incidents go unreported chris you had a concern which i guess i do too about possibly the use of too much jargon in some of the commentary maybe define a few terms well um one of the things that um both ted and i have I think agreed on for uh, quite some time uh, prior to the National Institute of Discovery Sciences and Colm Kelleher coming out with a theory that somehow this could, this whole phenomenon could be some sort of uh, monitoring of the food chain for what are known as transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. Basically, uh, in a nutshell, these are these are misfolded proteins. Uh, everybody has prions in them, but something. Uh, some environmental factor uh, tends to kick off occasionally these prions and make them replicate and they become misfolded, and then they, they, they replicate. One of the things that Ted brought up earlier um, had to do with mad cow disease and the possible linking of these animal mutilation uh, outbreaks to the monitoring of the food chain. One of the things that uh, I think we need to do, first of all, is to make sure our audience is aware of, of what we're talking about. Basically, what we're talking about is a is 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 called prion disease, and this is uh, the TSE acronym stands for transmissible spongiform encephalopathy, and basically what we're talking about is the smallest life form known to man as a virus, and prions are about a thousand times smaller. I'm not sure if you can actually classify prions as a life form because if when they kick off, like uh, full-blown AIDS uh, versus HIV. When they kick off, they can replicate. However, it is extremely difficult, almost impossible, to kill them. And one of your definitions of a life form is that it can be killed. So, you can't kill it because it's not alive. Exactly. So this this could be a very detrimental thing in the food chain. And uh, you know, quite a number of years back, uh, Philip Duke, uh, Ted, and myself started to to get this sense that maybe we're seeing a program that's monitoring the food chain for. TSE, which is transmissible spongiform encephalopathy, and that includes mad cow disease, chronic wasting disease in wild animals, deer and elk, Kreutzfeldt Jakob's disease, which is a naturally occurring uh, human variant of uh, of prion disease. It occurs in one in a million uh, people naturally. So this is, I think, a very very uh, smoking gun avenue of in, of inquiry and um i think ted early on uh came out with a very interesting paper called mad cows i have known that really spelled it out was the first real i think attempt to uh, equate 
outbreaks of cattle mutilations with the possibility of monitoring the food chain. So um, I just wanted to make sure that our listeners understood exactly what Ted was talking about before. So then it's the government that's doing it in this case. Well, again, I think that's a bit of a of an assumption. It may be a quasi governmental group, um, let's say similar to like the Centers for Disease Control or some sort of quasi government group that has access to military nationalist National Institute of Health. Right, a National Institute of Health. Rocky Mountain Labs. You're near all that up there, Colorado. Oh yeah. Yeah, of course, the Snippy case that occurred in 1967 was within uh, a couple, three weeks of the first known escape uh, or outbreak of uh, prion disease in nature, which uh, we can talk about if you want. But uh, And uh, John Alshuler was a veterinarian on that case. Well, he was a... Uh, he, yeah, he was a hematologist in residency at that point. And, uh, he, that's right, yeah, that's right, but he was there. He was the mystery pathologist that did the examination by headlights on the Snippy case, yes. He told me that himself. Yeah, and his brother works at Fort Detrick, Maryland. Isn't that interesting? Ain't it, though? Fort Detrick, of course, is where the Army Chemical Corps um, does their experiments and has uh, quite extensive labs, and it's where a lot of development of... Certain uh, bioagents uh, took place at one point or another. Um, again, yeah, Bill, what's the name of the other investigator over there who sent me those pictures of that lamb that looked like it had chemical burns on it? Uh, well, uh, that um, that particular investigator is a, a, a big cat investigator. It's not it's not actually connected to our investigations at all. I think right, that, right, right. I know that. I know that. But what's his name? Uh, Paul Westwood. That's it. Yeah, the pictures he sent looked like there was chemical burns on an animal. It looked like almost like, you know, a, some sort of foam that had acid in it. Really nasty stuff, and that animal was Ouch. alive. Yeah, and, you know, like the tissue sample that uh, Phil recently sent me, the animal that was, that was cut on, it was alive when it was cut on. And there was no blood at the incisional area? Not that I saw. Now, uh, I did. Uh, Phil, was there any blood on the incision of the animal you sent me the tissue from? Uh, there was absolutely none, and, and, and in some of the other um, mutilation cases, we've actually found that the same type of uh, incision area, which is like a circular incision, sometimes between, say, uh, about 70 millimetres to about 104 millimetres, it, it, it looks like it's been cleaned beforehand, before this actual has been cut. But one thing I'd like to come back on regarding what's been spoken about, about the uh, the BSC and, the, and that connection to the UK, is that um, obviously we make, we've made extensive inquiries to these links and we came across this was back in the late 80s obviously when obviously the, the, the BSC epidemic hit us uh, quite hard in the UK and uh, we found a, about a farmer that had actually researched um, the actual um, the compounds that were in the injections that were compulsory ma uh, placed upon far the farming community in the UK to, against the blowfly. Now, this farmer, he, he said that uh, the symptoms of his herd came about one year after the uh, inoculation from, the, from this, uh, this uh, um, substance. Well, so he, 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 That's so striking because, you know, one of the uh, questions I had recently, you know, I think, in our communications was, uh, is this organization researching it or are they causing it? 
well, I, in this particular instance, what happened was is that the farmer uh, found out that the, one of the ingredients was uh, a compound part of Agent Orange that was used as a defoliant in, in Vietnam. And he actually contacted uh, labs in the, in the US and got the antidote. He, he injected the, his, his herd, and of the majority were displaying the severe symptoms of BSC. They couldn't stand, the shaking, and he claims that the, the, virtually all the herd recovered. Uh, he also claims that uh, the men in pinstripe suits uh, turned up at the farm and made it no in certain terms uh, clear to him that if he continued to make this public, uh, he would be uh, to say in hot water was an understatement. Uh, so, I mean, it just seems to be that it may be through uh, negligence, incompetence, or just down to sheer greed that um, there's been a contamination of the food chain. Uh, to what degree it has not been determined and, and thus the mutilations have been instigated to monitor the effect and, and extent or severity of the contamination. And, and yeah, I should, I should uh, also remind our listeners that one form of prion disease that is quite prevalent, in fact, it was the first real identified prion disease in livestock is scrapie, which occurs in sheep, which is uh, the, the vast majority of the cases that uh, Philip has been investigating are sheep. One of the things I'm seeing here, so far most of what we've talked about, are things that could have been done by some kind of private or governmental organization. So is there any paranormal aspect to any of this, any high strangeness? Who wants to take that? Yeah, well, I'd I, I like to just come in on that uh uh, regarding the, uh, the the UK, I mean, there's obviously been a, quite a number of instances that we we cannot explain, and um, the farmers or even individuals in the area have, have actually claimed all sorts of interactions, uh, you know, and uh, uh, so some of the actual images on our cameras at the moment we can't fully uh, explain, the spheres, beams, um, the, the different things like that, uh, people claiming even contacts and all sorts of stuff. Uh, so we are constantly just documenting these things and making uh, comparisons to other, other reports. There is a consistency in this. So that there does seem to be this paranormal element, but, but it, when you look across the board, what percentage-wise is another matter. Um, so, it, it, like I say, it's, it's, it's an ongoing investigation. We're looking at many different things, but there is a small element. But are, are, as we said earlier, are the powers that be using that uh, to cover their, their, their tracks because a lot of people will jump initially straight to a paranormal conclusion because it is so bizarre. Uh, you, know, you, you, you just don't know at this moment in time. And the skeptics will automatically use that as a giggle factor to uh, totally uh, whitewash uh, the whole thing as misidentified scavenger action or mundane, you know, mundane uh, attrition at work. And, and I, again, that points back to that element that I brought up is there's a self-nullification uh, element going on in this whole thing that totally keeps the public and, to a lesser degree, investigators like us on our heels because we have a hard time uh, explaining this whole phenomenon in, in terms of uh, purely human perpetrators involved when you do have this very real and albeit a small percentage of cases that do have this, this high strange paranormal aspect to them. Now, on the reverse side of that, this paranormal aspect has been blown out of proportion by some investigators that attempt to then uh, whitewash the whole thing by saying this is all paranormal, this is all non-human uh, in, in nature, and that uh, we're dealing with something uh, you know, possibly off-planet or paranormal, multidimensional. Uh, I think uh, before we finish uh, the show today, 
I would like uh, to get Phil and Ted's, uh, you know, thinking on what could possibly be behind, uh, first of all, to explain some of these paranormal cases in, in terms of, you know, the evidence that we have, and then possibly uh, riff a little bit on what could possibly be uh, perpetrating these cases. But before we do that, I think uh, this whole element of, of monitoring the food chain, some sort of environmental monitoring program at work, I think is a very fruitful avenue of inquiry and discussion in terms of trying to explain at least a majority, in my opinion, of these cases. Uh, Ted, what do you think? Well, you know, uh, Colm Kelleher told me about the cases in Argentina, the mutilation cases down there. He said it had to do with hoof and mouth disease down there because they had been working with the Argentinian government to get them to, uh, you know, clean up uh, hoof and mouth disease down there, and they, they wanted to make sure that they had uh, done everything they were supposed to do, and so they went down to take samples to see if, you know, the beef was safe, and then it was determined it was, and then right after the mutilation stopped, the meat started hitting the market. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny how that works, isn't it? Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Christopher O'Brien is our special guest host. We're talking about animal mutilations, the ones performed by earthly actors and the ones maybe performed by others. And we have Phil Hoyle and Ted Oliphant, and we're covering all the various permutations. Why don't you pick up on this, Chris? Well, one of the things that I noticed early on is that there seems to be a very high strange element that's involved in a small percentage of cases. What I've noticed is these high strange cases tend to be the precursor cases or the, the cases that occur at the beginning of, let's say, an unfolding wave. This is something that tends to appear and disappear in, in, in waves. This is not something, I, I think, in my personal experience in the San Luis Valley, this is not something that that, that is a consistent type of, of phenomenon that, that, that occurs you know, at all times of the year and that burbles underneath the surface. I think we do see waves of activity, and what I have gleaned from my investigative work is that the, the initial cases at the beginning of a wave tend to be the ones that are high strange that can't be explained away uh, by some sort of human uh, perpetrator or simple misidentified scavenger action or what have you. And one of the things that I intuited very early on is there may be some sort of connection. I'm not sure exactly what we can talk about it, but there seems to be some sort of connection with the ancient practice of animal sacrifice. Humans have been sacrificing animals to the gods for thousands of years, and I don't think this is by accident. I think that this could be some sort of societal or cultural reaction to high strange cases that possibly farmers uh, or ranchers 
could possibly be the be a thousand, two thousand years ago, offering up and sacrificing animals to the gods. Uh, maybe not quite seed bulls or, or prime breeding stock. Maybe uh, sick or 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 not quality animals, sacrificing them to the gods, so the gods don't come down and take the good ones. I mean, that, this is a very generalized sort of, you know, uh, abbreviated uh, version of my thinking here, but I think that there is some sort of element that does tie into animal sacrifice, and this could be the thing that the media and and certain people out there in the public equating these cases to, to ritual activity by cults or by Satanists, which I think is is, is not you know, accurate, but I do get a sense that there is a ritual element involved. And this is a reaction to high strange cases that the very knowledgeable rancher or farmer cannot explain away. So this is, uh, I'll put this one out to the to the group there. What do you guys think? Well, I'd like to come in here in as much that I agree in a lot of what you just said in as much that a number of the um, uh, very limited, I must admit, um, veterinary examinations of the of mutilated animals here uh, in the Shropshire Welsh borders, the animals seem to have uh, been in very, very poor health or diseased before, obviously, they were, they were actually killed. So, I mean, it's it hasn't been always the uh, the, the, the prime stock that's, that's actually been mutilated. In some other cases, it has been, but a lot it hasn't. It's like some distinct sing- singled out that particular animal. Uh, but also another point I'd like to make, just backtracking slightly, is that when I first got involved in this uh, back in the 98, 99, uh, actually calling on these farms, um, I would obviously, when I approached the, the farmer, I would uh, I would never mention obviously anything to do with paranormal because that would be instantly the door would be closed. It was just it was just trying to find out if anything unusual taking place, any rustling. And and then we go through obviously through the photo albums any injuries. But one question I used to ask is obviously what uh, breeds of animal do you have? And as soon as they mentioned uh, cattle, I could be after only a short while I could be quite sure that they they wouldn't have had or would have any any mutilations on that farm. It seemed to be that if it was just sheep. There's a, there was a possibility, and all the other cases that followed, virtually all of them just had sheep in that, in that time frame. But any any farm with, with sheep and cattle, there was never any mutilations. And I drew the conclusion uh, initially that possibly that whatever was monitoring was monitoring the sheep to see if it was contaminated with the BSE, uh, because they already knew that all the cattle was. And that's why they had to have the mass cull in the UK because of the contamination of BSE. Six so, million head. Yeah, it's you know it's it was it was off the wall situation. So, um, but then over the over the last few years, that started to move back again, and now with a number of the farms that we've got um, that are active at the moment, they do have cattle, a small amount as well as, as sheep, and, and there's mutilations um, taking place there. But I've I've come across only one incident uh, personally where a, a calf was mutilated. And um, that particular farm, uh, the, the calf had been decapitated, in my opinion, in one clean cut. And uh, obviously the head had never been uh, discovered by the farmer, but it had also been skinned like a rabbit. Now, obviously, when we actually um, examine and uh, document what tissue or organs have been removed, we have actually consulted with, with surgeons and experienced professionals in the, uh, in the national health um, uh, system and said, why would you target these particular tissues or organs? And, and the response back is, they said, whatever's doing it is looking for something. 
because these particular organs and tissues would have concentrations of certain elements like BSD concentrates, the tonsils, uh, the, obviously the brain and the, the bone marrow. So it's like something is looking for something. But, uh, you know, that's, again, the, uh, the $64 million question. Right. And these organs, these soft tissue organs, are the fastest regenerating organs in livestock or mammals and also uh, harbor the least, uh, the most recent vestiges of environmental pollutants uh, are found in the soft tissue organs, um, which I think is, is a, a very important clue uh, that's often overlooked, I think, in the uh, research and investigative field. Ted, what do you think? Uh, what are your feelings about these high strange cases and, um, and when they occur and uh, what you can determine based on the unfolding wave of activity, at least the way that I've been seeing it. Uh, do you see any sort of correlation uh, that's similar in your, your cases? You know, I'm thinking real hard. And, you know, I'm not really, really not seeing anything, you know. The more I look back at it and the more I looked at it, you know. No, you know, other than, uh, you know, the obvious conclusions that I came across, I came upon and wrote about in 1997, uh, you know, with dead cows I've known. Uh, no, that's the only observations I made. I mean, when you, the name of the article is Dead Cows I've Known by Ted right. Oliphant. And uh, if you read that, that pretty much uh, ties together what I was able to tie together. It's all there. Why don't you mention uh, some of the smoking gun evidence that you found in terms of uh, of constituent elements found uh, within some of the cattle and, and some of the, um, you know, what could possibly be coincidental sort of uh, activity that's been uh, reported around some of these areas because I, I, I do feel that the Alabama wave is telling us a lot about the potential more mundane perpetrators that are involved in all this. Why don't you uh, kind of share some of your thinking that uh, that you did share in that article? Yeah, well, it was interesting. I went back with a film crew in 2002 and I went back and uh, interviewed some of the farmers that had been affected in 1993. So here we are, nine years later. I've gone back and uh, re-interviewing some of the cops, one of which is a you know, former coroner who lost all of lost animals. And so I talked to him about an animal he'd lost in 1992. This is 10 years later, you know. And uh, I finished doing the interview with him. He you know, gives us a tour of the farm, I think. About an hour and a half after I get back home, my friend's house where I'm staying in Alabama, I get a call from the farm. He says, well, you better get back down here. And so I grabbed one of the cameras and the other good camera and gone back to California. And uh, he had a fresh mutilation on his farm. I didn't know he had any animals left. He, didn't, he told me it was out of the visit, but he had one left. And it was mutilated somewhere within nine hours of our arrival. Wow. <laughs> and, it been, odds. and it had been there at the time that I was interviewing him. Wow. It was almost as if it had been provided for me. Wow. How about you, Phil? Have you ever had a case like that? Well, yes, this is funny you say that because um, it's 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 so it's so uh, I'd say unbelievable at times. But it, it, it would it would seem at times that there's some unknown intelligence at times that it's orchestrating the most uh, well I call it micromanagement. It's even the smallest events. I mean, one of the most micromanagement that means that Apple Steve Jobs is responsible, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, for animal mutilations. You heard it first he on the podcast. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you just increased the stock value when you said that. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, Apple was within $50 billion of Microsoft's market cap as of last week or the week before we're taping this recording, before we're doing the show. So it's very possible that that will be the thing that makes Apple more popular than Microsoft in terms of market cap. 
There it is. You heard it first. Uh, well, here's one for you. I love the uh, the incredible case uh, that Comb Kelleher and George Knapp spelled out in the book Hunt for the Skinwalker, where the Terry and Gwen Sherman were out checking their herd one o'clock in the afternoon, beautiful day. Walk through the pasture. They walk by a, a, a mother and her calf. They go about two, three hundred yards uh, past the calf. Uh, check the rest of the herd. Turn around. And come back within a matter of minutes. They came back and they noticed that the calf had been to- horribly mutilated. While they were in the pasture, they heard nothing. They saw nothing. They had a crack uh, team of scientists on site within hours. They did a complete necropsy on the animal, what was left of it, uh, with the help of a veterinary pathologist, if I remember correctly. Uh, I have had cases where uh, I had a rancher who lost uh, 49 head back in 75 within two weeks. It got so bad that uh, they did a complete stakeout with ranchers and deputies and a sheriff. They staked out the herd all night. They Nothing happened. Uh, they went ahead and went down. They took the 10, 12-minute ride into town to the sheriff's office. As, as they got into the office, the rancher had gone up to, to check on them and check on his herd and found a cow mutilated right where the guys had been headquartered, uh, you know, the guys who were monitoring the herd, and called down there and told them, you better, like you said, Ted, you better get back up here because there's a mutilation here. The sheriff and his buddies uh, and deputies went back up there, and sure enough, right there where they'd been standing and, and headquartered all night was a mutilated uh, cow. Uh, there is a high strange element um, involved in a few of these cases, not all uh, by any stretch. And I, 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 it's like a baby in the bathwater scenario. You can't throw out any sort of paranormal explanation because there are cases that uh, that are very well documented that can. Uh, suggest that we are dealing with something paranormal, but the, in my opinion, the 90% or more cases could have some sort of human perpetrator element involved. What does that suggest? Uh, at least in my mind, it suggests that the, the human element is aware of the paranormal element. Obviously, the paranormal element, uh, I think, Ted, your case is a classic example. That paranormal element is also aware of the human element. So, Chris, can I just throw something in here? Are sure. you suggesting then that the human element, being aware of the paranormal element, stages the human element to, again, misdirect, move our attention away from what's really going on before we get answers? secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free sent right to your mailbox, plus a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. You never know 
We have Christopher O'Brien, our special guest co-host, who obviously has been around this territory before, and he's author of a number of books, including Stalking the Tricksters, which is, of course, why he has that weird voice that, <laughs> that he channeled from some guy named Biedney. We also have Ted Oliphant and Philip Hoyle. So, Chris, let's go back to the misdirection and let's look at some purposes here. As we come into our last half hour of the episode, let's try to put it all together. Oh, boy, that's a that's a tall order, uh, Gene. Well, I'm uh, telling you, when I say you do it, you do it. You have to listen to me because <laughs> I gives the orders. Okay, you're the boss, boss. <laughs> Shaking the tree, boss. Shaking the cow. Yes. Uh, in answer to your question, the short answer is yes. I do feel um, that there is a connection. Um, I, I do have a sense that you know that that the human element involved in this is uh, perpetrating high strange cases, uh, what appear to be high strange. I mean, by by your classic mutilation, to throw investigators and law enforcement off track. Um, these cases tend to occur in the region where the initial cases occur, but at the other side of the county, or um, in in one sense of the word, there seems to be about a forty mile correlation. Uh, that is in a, a rough square around uh, many of these sites. A uh, very interesting observation was made by a an insurance adjuster up in Canada who, back in the late 80s, was investigating a whole outbreak of cattle mutilation cases in Alberta. And one of the things you know he was tasked with was determining the cause of death and whether it, you know insurance claims were valid if there was insurance on on these animals. And one of the things that he noticed uh, was that there seems to be a 40-mile correlation, uh, roughly in a square, and you'd have a case occur at ground zero, and then 40 miles away would be another case, and then 40 miles away from that case would be another case, and then back almost in a square pattern, he noticed that there was this interesting correlation. Uh, this is an example of trying to identify patterns, and... I do have a sense, in answer to your question again, that there are human groups that are perpetrating red herring cases, for lack of a better term, to throw investigators uh, off stride and, you know, to muddy up the investigative waters, uh, for lack of a better uh, definition. That implies, though, that they know what's going on? Exactly. Oh. So who are these human perpetrators? The government? The NSA? The men in black? Uh, and an NIH, maybe. <laughs> you know, it's epidemiology, the study of how epidemics are spread. So who is that? That's going to be things like the NIH, you know, Center for Disease Control, Rocky Mountain Labs, a whole bunch of different people can be looked at stuff. Uh, who's, you know, tasked with doing whatever they're doing? I don't know a specific agency or even if there is one. But, you know, all I can tell you is that there's definitely helicopters involved. When the FAA came down, saw an unmarked helicopter and tried to hail them on the radio, they didn't respond. They knew it was true. So there's somebody who's able to operate, you know, period. <laughs> Under the radar, as it were. Yeah, pretty much, you know. Well, you know, it is what it is. What do you think, Phil? Well... I still be saying there's, there's definitely uh, military helicopters, covert or, or an element of the military or government apart from the normal military. Uh, we, I've come across numerous farmers have actually been out very late checking, uh, you know, stock, and actually stumbled across uh, special forces all in black. Sometimes they say with no badges identifying who they are. Um, actually, on their land, helicopters landed, and uh, they come up with stories that in one particular incident, uh, the, the crew said 
that uh, they'd been on exercise and uh, they dropped some night vision equipment and they were looking for it and stuff like this. And so, you know, the, the, you know, the military are out there. There's just no ifs or buts about that. Uh, on the other side of the coin, uh, in uh, one high strangeness case where there was military presence and also uh, ground markings that were totally um, unusual that we couldn't identify. There was a, a, a it was a small hill farm and that's the profile in the, the Shropshire World Borders hill farms that uh, are virtually unaccessible um, by, by except for one lane. And these, this particular farm I'm talking about has had a number of uh, banded, uh, like horseshoe um, impressions on the hill and just below it where the mutilations were always discovered. These bands actually uh, range from 1.5 metres across to, to 6.2 metres. The actual width of the band uh, was uh, 220 two millimetres wide and if you can imagine that if you look at say a horseshoe the open end was always pointing down now when we had an examination of the um, of, of the soil and grass within the band it was literally baked like concrete I, I nearly broke the trowel trying to take um, uh, uh, samples uh, the analysis determined that it had been baked so hard by an unknown energy uh, that it was like ceramic but it was also uh, water resistant and repellent to any water substance. We couldn't explain where this, this had come from, uh, but other people, uh, locals and farmers, were seeing very unusual white spheres uh, over farms and uh, approaching farms and over fields, and one farmer even claimed to have actually witnessed um, jets um, having interactions with these spheres. Uh, but, um, like I say, say on, so we, on one side we've got this paranormal, and the other side we've got obviously uh, substantial evidence that there's a covert military presence around the area at night. Now one thing was to take into account where we live. I live in, in Shrewsbury which is uh in Shropshire, in the in the it's in the on the the west of the of the Midlands, just uh, 20 miles from the Welsh border. But we have the biggest helicopter training facility in the country, and uh, so obviously one thing we do have around here is plenty of helicopters. So I mean they're, they're there, and like I say, there's just just so many different fingers in the pie. But uh, we definitely know that the military uh, are watching something, and maybe vice versa. So it's uh, it, it's it's unfolding. You know where we we, we got that. Uh, we're lucky to have that right right under our noses, so we're, we're constantly looking for new evidence and, and, and evaluating what's taking place. Well, another thing that should be brought up is um, the sheer number of helicopter reports that have been filed and documented in and around mutilation sites. As of 1998, uh, we had 300 helicopter sightings that have been reported uh, in conjunction with mutilation sites. And I'm sure the number has gone up uh, considerably since then. But uh, this is an element that uh, some of the high strange proponents of this phenomenon tend to kind of uh, whitewash or sort of shove under the rug. And, and it's an element that in the pop culture uh, appraisal of this whole thing and inversion of this whole thing, you don't see this very, I think, telling uh, fact uh, brought out to in any explanation, uh, you know, trying to at least put the sign blame where it needs to go. And I, I do really feel that this is an important uh, element. I know Ted uh, went through the same thing down in Alabama with the, uh, the many helicopter sightings and reports that he had down there. Yeah, I saw him. <laughs> and so did my partner, and so did the FAA, and 
everybody knew about it. Even uh, it was. Let me tell you how bad it was. We talked about all you couldn't um, buy a high-powered rifle anywhere because they'd long sold. Um, when the army was getting ready to fly a bunch of helicopters over the mountain for an exercise, they went on the news. It was the first story that night that they were going to be flying a bunch of helicopters over Sand Mountain, and don't shoot at us. We're not doing the mutilations. Literally, they said that on the news. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Wow. <laughs> Jeez, I rest my case. Well, what about Big Mama out in the front range of Colorado back in 75, uh, where, I mean, they actually chased helicopters with private planes, and, you know, there's quite a bit of uh, very compelling evidence that suggests that if the government or a quasi-government uh, group is not involved in this, they sure know about it, and they're actively monitoring outbreaks of these types of cases. This is uh, an element that I think has been uh, a little bit neglected, I think, in the public disclosure of this whole phenomenon. I think, uh, you know, you've got uh, probably the most valid point. Well, thank you, Ted. <laughs> it must be the trickster. Well, we have to see why we're playing that trick, and maybe that's something we can deal with in the remaining few moments of this episode, which is, okay, let's look at the High Strangest episodes. This is... The Paracast, we're looking at the paranormal. So, Philip, is it E.T.? What is causing the paranormal aspect of animal mutilations? Well, like I say, that's, like I say, that's, that's the main question. It, uh, there, there is definitely um, an element, um, most likely a very small element, that, that is as yet unexplainable. The technology and the time that's been actually cited or witnessed would put it outside the envelope of black budget. Uh, back to the 50s, we're talking about, in the uh, and even before, some of the uh, older farmers recalling instances that are clearly extremely unusual and paranormal. But um, it could well be that there's a situation that there is uh, a paranormal intelligence monitoring the different procedures or monitoring of a, or a contamination of the food chain. It's just that, that there's been um, earthbound agencies have created a problem, they're aware of it, they're monitoring it, and something else is, is watching and monitoring them and vice versa. It's, it's, it's like Chris said earlier, you can have a, an unusual strangeness case and then all of a sudden there's a, an upsurge of, of cases that don't carry the same signatures that would indicate that it was uh, something that extremely unusual it's so it's we, we have to keep constantly an open mind and i think that the one the one learning curve that we, we we've uh, we've come to take on board is that you you cannot um take for granted what you know today will will be the same tomorrow you must constantly reevaluate. and and going back to earlier earlier in the program it, we're talking about what predators can do and chris mentioned about certain predators can make perfect holes i've said to a number of colleagues and people associated with this subject when we first started off we have uh, this um this, this photo album graphically showing all the injuries i said as we actually go through the learning curve and understanding what animals can do we might have to delete a lot of these from the profile because we will find out um, as much about animals as, as about the mutilation phenomena because the bottom line is simple Ted and Chris uh, are the people who have been really the trailblazers really the, the pioneers writing the book on this we're following on their work so we're constantly having to to reevaluate, to look, to learn and take on board every possibility and delete things that don't fit the puzzle. So it's, it's, it's exciting uh, and puzzling, but it, it's something that uh, will, I think, eventually be understood. But the, the bottom line to understand it is keeping a constant open mind and reevaluating our work. Okay, can we place this in the same category of UFOs then? Is it something that is connected with the UFO phenomenon or, or what? Yes. 
I can firmly say yes. Uh, I've had enough cases that have had reports of landed uh, objects, of, of unconventional uh, non-ballistic craft that have been seen in and around mutilation sites, sometimes even during uh, cases. But I, I can also say that, it, that there have been helicopters uh, that have been described in the same manner uh, in terms of uh, their, you know, being around a, a mutilation site either just before, during, or after a case is reported. One of the things, though, that and this kind of reminds me of something I wanted to bring up earlier that's always puzzled me is I have combed through the records of all the major researchers, all the documented reports I could get my hand on, and I have yet to come up with a, a case of a mutilation in a Brahma bull or cow. Now, of course, Brahma cattle are considered good in India, and I have yet to come up with a mutilation case in India where cattle are considered sacred, where you have you are obliged by religious law to allow a cow to walk into your house if it wants to. They have nursing homes in India for cattle. Um, there, oh, there that, that's wait a minute, wait a minute. This is getting raunchy. Nursing homes I, for cattle. Yeah. There are hospices for cattle in India, but I have yet to find a case of a Brahma bull or a Brahma cow that has been mutilated anywhere. And I'm I still trying to I deal with the hospices for cattle because I, do they have health insurance too? Because you know, here in America, it's they health do. insurance. They do. They do. It's called the Vedic tradition. It is. They don't, they don't, you know, they don't have to do mutilations in India because cows never become part of the food chain. Exactly. Well, that answers a lot. Interesting observation, Chris. Very interesting. A little clue for y'all. I challenge any of you paracasters out there to find me one documented case of a Indian slash a Brahma cow or, um, or or bull or steer, for that matter, that has been mutilated. You never eat tandoori steer. <laughs> For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? We have Christopher O'Brien, our special guest co-host. He's written such books as Stalking the Tricksters, The Mysterious Valley, Enter the Valley, Secrets of the Mysterious Valley, and Mark Valley. No, Mark Valley is an actor who plays in Human Target. I'm just getting wrapped up with all the valleys here. <laughs> we have Philip Hoyle talking to us from the U.K., and Ted Oliphant, who was actually a police officer in Alabama. And as I mentioned earlier before the show started... I actually worked in Alabama. My very first job as a broadcaster was in Piedmont, Alabama. Piedmont? Yeah. And the station was WPID. I don't think it's there anymore because the call letters meant, well, Piedmont is dead. So either the town is dead or the station is dead. I'm not sure. It's still there. I went through a girl who, I went to the academy with a girl who ended up at Piedmont as police. So the radio station is still there. 
Piedmont's a little town about halfway between Atlanta and Birmingham, by the way, if anyone cares. But we're exploring animal mutilations here. We're trying to focus now on the things we have to do to learn more about what's going on. I'm letting Chris take the lead on this because he's just explored this for so long, and he's tired of doing the trickster voice, so let's proceed. Okay. Well, here's one for you all. How about if we put together a triangulated, you know, high-def uh, camera surveillance setup on cell towers that monitors a region where these cases are routinely reported uh, and uh, get some hard data, some hard optical data. And, uh, and you know, I think obviously we need to be more effective with our networking efforts to get all the ranchers and the ranching community and law enforcement on the same page. But my suggestion in my efforts are being geared towards monitoring the San Luis Valley's hardest hit areas uh, 24-7 with a complete surveillance setup so that when one of these cases occurs, we can jump all over it and have hard data to back it up. We can summon veterinary pathologists and veterinarians who all have the proper necropsy protocols and uh, have a complete list of what they should do when they go on site and go ahead and really nail these cases down as soon as possible. We need to be on on these cases within 24 hours. And I think anything short of that is just going to be spinning our wheels. And uh, I am actively involved in setting up a, a full-time 24-7 monitoring surveillance setup in the hardest-hit areas of the San Luis Valley, which is the epicenter, I think, of, uh, of the cattle mutilation phenomenon. This is where the first publicized case in 67 occurred. And um, I think it's really important that we, uh, that we work together, that Phil and Ted and myself, David Perkins, other people that are involved in investigating these cases, we need to dovetail and, and co-opt our actions and really work together on all this. How do we deal with the riffraff, the people who are just trying to sell books and lectures, and they're not really trying to learn what's going on? There are none. There's very, very few people that are willing to stick their necks out in this realm. Phil and Ted, I think, are real troopers. Um, they're pioneers in this whole field. It takes a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of personal strength uh, to be involved in this whole phenomenal uh, area of investigation. This is not a popular subject in any uh, group out there. It's often been equated, I think, as the, the, the least popular subject in the paranormal. I can see why. I personally have a real aversion to dead animals, but these, these ranching communities and, and these ranches, uh, most of them small-scale small, small scale ranches, uh, they, they need help, and, and we need to marshal our forces and network our, our efforts and really work to solve this mystery or at least try to you know, be in a place where we can scare these people away and let these ranchers uh, you know, go about you know, raising cattle and, and maximizing their livelihood instead of having to write off lost investments because of mutilations. And, well, they should, you know, we should give uh, copies of uh, Llewellyn's metaphysical calendar to all the uh, ranchers and uh, let them you know, do visually night that night. That's a really good, good idea, Ted. I'm, I'm serious. I am, too. I think that this any type of heads-up that we can come up with to supply these ranchers, any sort of, of patterning that we can identify or any anything that's going to help these guys be extra vigilant when they need to be, I think is important. I think I'm not discounting your idea at all. I think it's a good one. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it would be interesting to see if they happen anyway. What about dealing with the media? The media is going to try to turn this into one huge joke. 
They always do. How are they going to know about it? Well, how are they going to know about it? You know? Well, you have investigators that go from outside a particular area and come into an area, find some cases that are maybe mutilations or maybe unidentified scavenger action. This just happened recently this fall in the San Luis Valley. We had an outside investigator that came down, poked his nose around, uh, found some cases that were equivocal. And then the first thing he did was call every media source uh, that he could and reported these things to newspapers and, and stuff. And it went viral. It went around the world. And, and we have uh, examples of amateur investigators. I mean, all of us are amateur investigators. I mean, when it comes down to it, none of us are veterinary pathologists. That's the only real professional animal mutilation investigator out there. However, Myself and Ted and Philip have been around these cases enough. We've done the research. We've, we've caught up on the learning curve and what to look for. The first thing that I look for is cut hair follicles. If there is an animal that has an incision and there's a long straight line, let's say you know from a half an inch uh, larger of cut hair follicles, there's no predator or scavenger on the planet that can duplicate that. So that to me is my litmus test for a high strange case. If there's cut hair follicles, that is a high strange case that deserves investigation. And uh, uh, there are a other amateur investigators out there that don't have this particular experience. They don't have the the number of cases under their belt to be able to go out and effectively look at a case as an amateur and determine whether it deserves to be investigated or not. And the last thing you should do is go out and trumpet, you know, mystery mongering to the media. That, that to me, is anthema to any, any sort of solution. Phil, what's your feeling about that? How does the media treat this in the U.K.? Well, the, the media is, uh, and the whole attitude to uh, the UFO phenomena, for instance, animal mutilations, everything in this country uh, is so far behind America. I mean, I had a conversation with uh, a reporter only a few weeks ago regarding the mutilation phenomena, and I explained it to uh, this lady graphically, and I sent images, and she said, well, if this is going on, why don't, you know, why doesn't she know about it? And I said, well, you're part of the media and you're part of the problem because you're not the ones reporting it. I said, I know it's uh, an unsavory subject, but at the end of the day, this could affect everybody's lives because if there's a contamination of the food chain, obviously we're the people that are consuming these animals and it could affect us personally and our families and future generations. We need to understand exactly why it's been done and by whom. And, uh, you know, because we, we should be given the choice whether to, uh, to make a decision, should we eat these animals? animals. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, there's, there's a lot of ignorance, but there's also this, there's this stigma that Chris talked about, and obviously, you know, you, 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 if you have people coming in making off-the-cuff remarks or statements when they don't really know or understand this, the, the, how complex this uh, phenomenon is, it could be very de detrimental to us and, and to our investigations in this, in this country, and the same could be in America. So, you, your responsibility and, uh, you know, it, uh, it is, is the main player. You must take responsibility for your actions and what you do you can't you can't just be an amateur for, and, and investigate for a few minutes and then make a mess and walk away so I mean at the end of the day we're, we're looking at everything as we said before we need constantly to try and take on board new information new knowledge we're not experts and we try to recruit them I, I wrote to over 65 vets I asked obviously for, for cooperation or even for these people to to uh, to, uh, to look at the evidence and I received not one single reply Ouch. and uh, 
you know. So I even included a stamped address envelope. Uh, I even said I, w- I would supply a free uh, video and or DVD, but there was there was no response. So I mean, it's very difficult to get to get any sort of cooperation from professionals. But uh, we, we keep we, we will continue to do try this and and slowly push the boundaries and and, and make awareness to the farmers and to, and to the general public. Okay, so that's the big difficulty here. You don't really have medical professionals who can do the forensics. No, no that's right. That's mm-hmm. not totally true. I mean, I, I do know of a number of vets in the San Luis Valley that have seen enough of these cases to know that there's something real behind this. So that's not totally true. I think in Philip's case, I think, like he said, that they're behind the times up there, and there is there is a giggle factor that has overwhelmed the mystery there. I think in hard-hit places like the San Luis Valley, and I think Ted would probably agree down in Alabama in the late 90s, that, that there were professionals that were willing to get involved, maybe not on the record, but at least willing to do the tests. Um, diagnostic labs that were, that were at least willing to... Uh, to That's right. We got a lot of technical help from university people. Yeah, and, and I was working with John King from the, uh, you know, the New York uh, Veterinary College at Cornell. Uh, you know, uh, to be honest with you, he's, he's almost a debunker, but at least he was open-minded enough to at least do the tests on the animals. So it's like four steps forward, five steps back, three steps forward, two steps back. We are making, slowly making progress to try to interest the scientific community that the, or educate them that the, this is a problem, but uh, we still have a, a ways to go. What is his opinion of what he saw? Well, uh, one case he said was uh, equivocal. He couldn't really determine one thing or another. The other two or three cases that he was willing to, to in, you know, to do testing on and have his students uh, look at, he said to him, in his opinion, uh, was unusual scavenger action. But uh, there was a case that he did uh, say that he couldn't really come up with a real viable, you know, explanation for what happened to the animals. So. Um, you know, and there have been cases where uh, I had a case just uh, recently here this last uh, late summer where uh, a retired veterinarian had a mutilation on his ranch and he didn't make an official report, but he had one of the deputies come down and he just went up one side and down the other and said, this is high strange, but I don't want to make an official report. And I don't want my name mentioned, uh, you know, in conjunction with this case. But he warned the deputy that this is somebody came and did this to my cow or something came and did this to my cow. And he just wanted to put it, put him on notice to keep his eyes open. So I think as these cases slowly continue uh, down through time, we're going to get more and more <laughs> respect from the scientific community. And we're going to see uh, we're going to see the powers of uh, diagnostic uh, veterinary uh, pathology in, in forensic science. You know, brought to bear on this whole question. I think the National Institute of Discovery Sciences, George Onet, Colm Kelleher, microbiologists, these types of people, we need more uh, efforts like this uh, to really get to the bottom of this whole thing. Philip Hoyle, where can we find more of the things that you do? Well, I mean, the, the, uh, the our website is the uh, the main place to to actually access, which is like I said, it's the uh, APFU.org, and uh, that gives uh, a very comprehensive overview of our cases and what we're trying to do. And obviously, the website's in its early stages. Uh, we're constantly uh, looking to. Um, to gain funding and equipment and to expand our operations to find the answers. That's where our objective, wherever, wherever the answer is, we are looking for it. And we will constantly to expand those boundaries. But just coming back to the, the bizarreness of the, of the whole phenomena, we have a one case, that, and it's, it's not, not alone to be, in one case that, that uh, one person found a number of owls that were actually in a straight line and all have been dissected. 
and you're thinking, well, why, you know, why would anybody want to do this? But it's not. We've had rabbits and other small rodents as well. So I mean, the whole thing is 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 complex. It's unfolding, but uh, we 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 have to constantly look for every every area of the spectrum to find answers. Because I, I feel strongly, whatever's taking place, we need the answers for for everybody's uh, our futures and our children's futures. If there's a contamination, we must find out what it is and try and eliminate it from the food chain. Ted Oliphant, some final words and where to get hold of you? I just want to thank Phil Hoyle for picking up the torch and running with it. You know, uh, nobody mm-hmm. else is really, uh, you know, besides Chris O'Brien, there's really nobody else really doing out there doing that right. He's, uh, he's doing a great job out there. I, I encourage everybody to go check out uh, their site. Uh, one of the yeah. best investigators for a long, long time. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'm just glad that he's out there doing it now. I'm glad that Chris O'Brien's been out there doing it forever. Other people like Dave Perkins and... Uh, I've been working on this for a long time, and uh, I'm just glad that they're out there still doing it. So, and thanks for having me on the show. I thought it was a great show. And we check your site over at MySpace? Yeah, myspace.com slash New Orleans Photography. One word. And uh, lots of photographs, lots of writing, and lots of fun stuff up there. Uh, come on, see me. And thanks again for having me on the show. I liked it a lot. Chris O'Brien, you have a successor to Stalking the Tricksters? Oh, boy. I'm not sure about that. I might have to stay away from the old trickster thing. I've uh, opened myself up to uh, <laughs> to quite a kettle of fish with that whole theory. But, again, uh, if anybody's interested in my work, my complete database is online. It's OurStrangePlanet.com. Uh, we do live in a strange planet. It's our strange planet. So if you're interested in, in the hundreds and hundreds of UFO sightings and uh, dozens and dozens of uh, mutilation cases, uh, all the information is up there online. And uh, I do urge everybody to uh, network with each other, become educated about this, and uh, always keep your eyes open. But when they tell you to keep your eyes to the sky, make sure you also have an ear to the ground. I should mention that connection, by the way. The book by the late Mac Tonys, The Crypto Terrestrials from Anomalous Press, the book is out. It is a terrific book, a very short book, about 128 pages. Anybody can read it in three hours. And I recommend it to everyone. This will be the subject of a future Paracast session. Next week, we'll have Paul Kimball as our guest host. Our guest will be Michael McDonald, a Canadian filmmaker who's made a number of excellent documentaries on UFOs and the paranormal. Once again, a thank you to Ted Oliphant, Philip Hoyle, and our favorite trickster himself, (laughs) Christopher O'Brien, for being our guest host this week. Thanks for joining us on the Paracast. You did a great job, Gene. Thanks a lot, Phil and Ted, man. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Paracast is a copyrighted presentation from Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.